That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from one mile away. So I know what it looks like when the experts get it wrong. There really is only one story in the nuclear world today, and that is the event that just took place in Southern California, in San Diego, which brought together former Prime Minister Naoto Kan from Japan, former chair of the NRC Gregory Yasko, and former commissioner of the NRC Peter A. Bradford, who was there during Three Mile Island, as well as Arnie Gunderson and representatives from local government. This was huge because for the first time, we had the people who were directly involved in nuclear accidents from official capacities at the top of the food chain spoke about what it was like, the issues that they faced, and the decisions that they had to make under the worst of all possible nuclear circumstances. Today's podcast is going to be devoted exclusively to this event, which took place today, June 4th. 2013. We'll start out with the testimony of Prime Minister Naoto Kan, who was the head of Japan when the Fukushima accident happened, as he speaks directly and movingly about his experience there. The interpretation for this is being provided by Kathy Iwane, and our thanks to her for having stepped forward on a volunteer basis to provide the voice of Naoto Kan. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm honored to be here in this position and take part in this gathering. I have 50 minutes to speak today, and I'd like to speak especially on the events uh, that occurred after 2011, March 11. On March 11, 2011, at 2.46 p.m. In, in the House of Parliament building, we felt a huge, huge uh, earthquake. The huge chandelier above us was uh, swinging like a, like a chime, and we all thought it would fall. So finally, the uh, swaying from the earthquake was over, and the emergency headquarters underneath the parliamentary, uh, the parliamentary uh, area was under emergency uh, lookout. At first, there was the tsunami warning signal and only the earthquake warning signal. So he was relieved to hear the very first information from the nuclear facilities was that it had, without any emergency incident, had uh, gone offline without a problem. And he was very relieved to hear this. However, one hour later, at the Daiichi, which is the very first uh, first four plants of Fukushima, there was completely information, completely different information coming in, and it was not looking good. And after that, we heard that all cooling systems were failing. And what are we going to do? I immediately thought there was a chill that ran down my, thumb, down my spine. What are we going to do in order to cool these reactors? So as everyone knows, when uh, the reactors go offline, there is absolutely no way to cool them uh, naturally. So as long as time goes by, it just gets worse and worse, and the heat continues to rise. The biggest problem there with the uh, continuing heating of the, of the reactors is that the steam from the remaining water that's there to cool it down completely evaporates. Especially reactor one, we heard four hours later because of a lack of water, it did begin to melt down. Three Mile Island, we know, we know now that they were able to stop things before a complete meltdown. We were unable to do this at Fukushima. The containment vessel is about 20 centimeters, maybe 20 centimeters thick, and it just started melting through and started melting through the corium very slowly. And in continuing this process, there is a two-meter thick concrete containment vessel, which also began to leak. And if you had a complete breach of this two-meter concrete barrier, there is no way that anyone would even be able to come close to make efforts 
emergency efforts to contain it. So then we started adding water. Uh, we started pouring water from various areas onto the melted nuclear fuel, onto the spent fuel that was melting through in order to try to contain it. Two years later, we are still in the same situation, making efforts at doing this very thing, trying to keep the spent fuel pools cool, adding water in reactor one. We're in the same situation. The uh, radiation exposure is so terrible that if a human being comes anywhere near this area, in two minutes they would be uh, killed. And 24 hours after this time, there was a hydrogen explosion at reactor one. And then on March 14, at Reactor 4, there was another hydrogen explosion. At Reactor 3, pardon me. And on March 15, we got a report, a warning from the utility saying, there's nothing we can do, we want to evacuate. If you did that, there would just be, it would spiral out of hand, is what Mr. Khan was believing. There's just uh, no way that I can allow this. There are six reactors at Daiichi with seven spent fuel pools. 12 uh, kilometers away from, from the, the Daiichi, there are Dai, there is the Daini reactors, and those are the Daini plant composed of four reactors and spent fuel fuels for each. So he, he had studied a lot about Chernobyl. In Chernobyl, there were four reactors which exploded. Reactor number four only exploded, only one reactor. What he thought was, if in Fukushima, the 10 reactors with 11 spent fuel pools, if they, these were all to explode, it would be uh, magnified. The, the, ter the terrible uh, exposure would be magnified by tens and 20 times that of Chernobyl. And this is what he thought about. In this case, it would be definitely necessary to evacuate all of Tokyo. He consulted with the Nuclear Regulatory Safety Commission, and whose name is Mr. Kondo, and he said, what should we do? What should we do? And he talked about this with, his, uh, with Mr. Kondo. Uh, as he discussed, the, discussed this with Mr. Kondo, we, they found that in a worst-case scenario, it would be very necessary to evacuate a radius of 190 miles from the accident site. In Tokyo is included in this area. So the only so if such a such a scenario were to happen, there would only there would be only five hundred thousand people left. At the present time, there are one hundred sixty thousand people that have been evacuated from Fukushima. As a result, people have had to flee from their jobs. Family members have been spread out all over the country, and the very fabric of the society in Fukushima, their very lives have been completely disrupted and turned upside down. If 500,000 people had to evacuate hospitals, schools, jobs, in this whole process, it just would have been, um, it, it would have been terrible. Pardon me? 50 million people in a worst case scenario. If they would have had to evacuate their jobs, schools, all of the very functioning mechanisms of the infrastructure during this process, it would have you would have had more problems evacuating the hospitals and the schools because of the evacuation. And at the same time, over a long period of time, it would have affected Japan, the whole entire fabric of the country, in the same respect. Until March 11, 2011, I was very, I thought carefully about the safety of nuclear power. My focus was on the safety. How can we safely and effectively use nuclear power to benefit the society? However, after Fukushima, my whole mindset about nuclear power has changed 180 degrees. For example, if an airplane crashes, I look at the loss from the, from the deaths that result from an airplane crash. However, in an, in an accident such as this nuclear accident, you have a situation where 40% of the population leaves their area. It affects one-third of that top geographical area. It is um, much, much worse than the, than the scenario of the falling plane or of a war, of an actual war. And therefore, we be, he began to think that there is only one way to deal with this risk. What, in one way to effectively 
deal with 100% this risk of uh, mass destruction, there's one thing I thought about it. And the most important thing that I realized was we need a society that has no nuclear power. After the accident, it was very, very important to uh, begin to implement renewables, uh, natural energy, including solar, biomass, wind. Okay. And before the accident, the, uh, before the 311 accident, aside from hy hydro propulsion, that sort of renewable energy, there was only 1% of resources were devoted to other renewables. And in the six months since this, uh, since this system of implementing renewables has been instituted, we have been able to access the amount of 2.5 nuclear reactors harnessing of power through solar energy generation. There's a big plan, and a big uh, there's a big plan right now to in implement wind windmills in the ocean floating in the ocean in Fukushima, and that's in, in, in process. And we are beginning to see that economically this just makes more sense. The renewables are making more sense from the economic standpoint. We can see a very good example by looking at Germany. And Germany has decided by 2022 that they will completely be phased out of nuclear power. And their goal in Germany is by 2050 to work toward the goal of no fossil fuel energy generation. Germany is really on the road to getting rid of nuclear power. However, the economics pose very many questions. However, as everyone knows, Germany, among all of the countries that are trying to phase out and talking about this in their administrations, Germany is the one that is economically balanced in their plan and leads as an example. The problem in my country is that concerning nuclear power, among the thinking groups that are in power, there is still the, the mistaken thought that the, the nuclear power generation is cheap. But it's completely wrong. The calculation for such costs do not take into account any budget at all for what happens, where do the costs come from, where does the money come from for taking care of everything after an accident. Nuclear waste, dealing with nuclear waste and spent fuel, there is no budget for dealing with this. So these costs are not in the calculation. And because Japan is a country marked with fault lines, earthquake fault lines, and marked with a history of terrible earthquakes, it is that much harder to find a place, a repository, for such nuclear waste and spent fuel. In the world, the biggest a repository for spent fuel is presently in Finland. He'll talk about this uh, data. He saw a documentary on this repository in Finland. The title of this in Japanese is After a Hundred Thousand Years. What happens to this repository after a hundred thousand years? And why, why are we talking about a hundred thousand years after an accident. It's because plutonium, plutonium's half-life is 24,000 years. And the calculation for this, after one-fourth of the plutonium reaches that one-fourth life, another, another 24,000 years. One-tenth, another 24,000 years. And so finally you come to the calculation of one-sixteenth equaling 100,000 years. In other words, it's it's us, the humans, they, it's mankind that needs to babysit this nuclear waste for 100,000 years. And the cost, who bears the cost for this? The cost is passed on to the generation after us, and after that, and after that, and so on. And so what I believe is leaving this cost, as well as the danger, the risk, to our grandkids and to our progeny, is not, not only the risk, but the danger and the responsibility and the financial cost is 
Prime Minister Khan had more to say, and we will feature that in a future nuclear hot seat. Gregory Yasko, former chair of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, spoke second. He was the man in charge during Fukushima. Here are his comments. It's a tremendous uh, honor for me to be here uh, in Southern California. Uh, and I want to thank a few people uh, before I begin. First of all, I, I want to thank uh, Prime Minister Khan, uh, not only for his leadership during the Fukushima accident, but really for his leadership afterwards. Supervisor Roberts for helping to organize this and, and inviting us here. In all the times that I visited Japan and with all the uh, efforts uh, related to the accident, uh, it uh, this is the first time that I've, I've sat next to Prime Minister Khan, and uh, and so it uh, it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to do that, and I want to thank everyone who made that possible. And I, uh, I do want to also thank uh, Torgan Johnson, who uh, called me up one day and said, um, I would love for you to be able to get together with Prime Minister Khan. And I said, sure. Um, and uh, I, I wasn't sure that that was ever going to happen, but, um, but it did. And I, and I want to thank him for doing that. And I think it's... Uh, I also want to thank Friends of the Earth and, and Physicians for Social Responsibility who helped to organize. Uh, I know putting an event like this together takes a tremendous amount of work, so I, I thank everybody who, who was involved. Um, the accident in Fukushima was, was certainly nothing that I ever anticipated uh, happening. Uh, I woke up the morning of March 11th uh, with a call from uh, the Operations Center at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission telling me that uh, there had been an earthquake uh, in Japan. The uh, earthquake was a very large earthquake, uh, and there was the potential, uh, as I was told at that time, that there could be a large tsunami associated with, uh, with, with uh, that earthquake. Months after the accident, uh, I was asked when I was first told about the accident and uh, where I was and what I was doing, and I couldn't really remember because uh, it wasn't that eventful what I was told at that very first phone call. The NRC at the beginning was most worried about plants here on the West Coast, uh, Diablo Canyon and San Onofre, because of the possibility of a tsunami. Uh, we were focused initially on uh, making sure that the tsunami, uh, when it hit the West Coast, didn't create any problems for plants in the United States. The accident, in fact, didn't create a large tsunami wave. It was well within the, the, the levels that, that could be expected. But it, it did certainly have significant ramifications for, uh, for how we look at nuclear power uh, in this country. Uh, so I want to spend a little bit of time talking about my thoughts uh, about how I think we should look at nuclear power after this accident. And, of course, it's always easier looking back to, to be right and to be better. Uh, but that doesn't prevent you from doing things and from needing to take action. The, the first important lesson that I think we need to remember and think about uh, is that accidents do happen. Now, that's a very cliche phrase, uh, but it's something that we need to remember and we need to keep in mind. As I was learning about the accident in Fukushima, I often would ask the staff of the NRC why we weren't thinking of that or why we hadn't prepared for that or why we weren't uh, ready to deal with something like that. Uh, and sometimes the answer was we had thought about it, but we didn't think it was, it was uh, going to happen or we thought it was so unlikely that it would happen that we, we couldn't require people to take action and to do something uh, to address it. Uh, I think that's a very, very important lesson, and uh, that the accidents do happen. And so it, it led me to begin to think a little bit more about 
nuclear power and how we deal with safety of nuclear power plants. And my thinking evolved significantly uh, after the accident and during the accident. And I thought it was very important that we begin to look at not just the likelihood of something happening, but to focus more extensively on what can happen and what goes wrong. In most of the requirements for nuclear power plants in this country, uh, they are required to deal with accidents uh, and to deal with certain accident scenarios. But not all plants are required to deal with some of the most severe accident scenarios. And that creates a bit of a challenge uh, because when you get a very severe kind of situation like a large earthquake uh, followed by a very large tsunami, you wind up putting the plant in a configuration it was not designed to deal with. And as uh, Prime Minister Khan said, in general, nuclear power plants can be shut down, but they don't easily turn off. There are natural radioactive decay processes that need to happen uh, that take time, and they take additional cooling uh, methods to address. The accidents that are looked at for nuclear power plants don't always consider all of the, those scenarios in which you have a very damaged uh, process, you have a very damaged cooling system. In that case, the plants are not designed naturally to be able to, to cool and lead to the kinds of severe accidents that, that we saw in Fukushima. Where I think we have such important lessons to learn is that we have known that for a long time. Uh, people. Uh, familiar with nuclear power and, and the technical experts understand that when you lose electric power for a long period of time, uh, it's something we call a station blackout event, that that will almost always lead you to a large release of radiation. But what was missing was the appreciation that that could in fact happen. Uh, and for many people, what happened in Fukushima was a wake-up call, uh, that this scenario, which had been looked at and postulated, but always believed to be of such low probability that it did not need to be addressed, uh, could in fact happen. So the, the other big issue that I think we need to look at and think about is the role of probability in looking at accidents and how we think about that and how we think about uh, that in terms of risk. It's very difficult to, uh, to try and figure out in a finite world with finite resources where you can best put your, research, your resources to make things better. Nuclear power plants are no different. So a lot of methodologies were developed over the years uh, under the name of risk analysis to try and figure out how do we best allocate resources? Where should we put finite dollars in a way that maximizes our ability to do good things, to enhance safety, to make things better. And over the years, that risk analysis was largely developed to deal with nuclear power plant accidents, to try and give a perspective for accidents relative to other kinds of hazards. But I think over time, what has happened is that because those exercises were so theoretical in nature, uh, it was very difficult for them to be applicable in practical decision-making. So over the years, we began to rely more and more on the fact that things were not likely to happen, and as a result, we didn't need to spend money to address them. Clearly, the accident of Fukushima told us otherwise. And if there's nothing more significant to think about, it's, it's the cost of the accident itself. Uh, a recent assessment that was done by the American Nuclear Society, which is a very credible organization made up of nuclear professionals, uh, estimated in a report that they did following the accident that the overall cost, including economic costs, loss of activity, uh, the loss of, of viable um, use of, of, of land, is approximately $500 billion. And I'm sorry, I'm, the reason I'm pausing is so the translation can happen. So I apologize for, for, for those of you, but it's, I think it's important for them to be able to keep up. They do a lot of work to do this translation. It's not easy. The $500 billion is a tremendous sum, and, and that is only a minimum, uh, and it depends largely on how long uh, nuclear power stays offline in Japan. Likely that cost estimate would go up the longer they, they stay in the, in the current configuration. So when we're dealing with nuclear power plants, what we're dealing with is a situation in which you have a very unlikely events that can have very, very significant 
consequences. And what I've come to realize is that the usual ways of ana analyzing this with risk analysis is not very useful because most of the time things don't happen and things don't go wrong. But when the one thing does that nobody can predict because it surprises everyone, the consequences are tremendous. So as the accident developed and as we began to learn more and more, one of the lessons that I, I understood and began to believe more than anything was that we had to pay much, much greater attention to the consequences of an accident, to the economic impact and to the personal hardship that can be placed on people. Unfortunately, that is very difficult to put into numbers. It's very difficult to design regulations around that. So there has been a lot of resistance to thinking more about doing those things. And when I was at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, there was resistance uh, to, to looking more significantly at these kinds of things. And I think that's a mistake, and I think it's unfortunate that we have not done more uh, to consider those aspects of, of nuclear accidents. And I would like to tell you a very personal story, if I, if I could, about, I think, how these accidents play out and what it means for people uh, in, in, in Japan and throughout the world. I was uh, in the role as chairman uh, tasked with helping uh, the U.S. government deal with a response to, to the accident in Japan, tasked with helping lead um, the NRC in dealing with the aftermath in the United States, and tasked with helping lead a group of people who went to Japan to help provide assistance and recommendations to the Japanese uh, government. After I left my job as, as chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, I was invited to go to, uh, to, to Japan. And I went to visit uh, with some people who had been evacuated uh, from uh, the site around Fukushima. And I think it's very, it was a very uh, significant experience for me because it is very easy uh, in the position of chairman to look at numbers, to look at all of these issues in a very objective and uh, simple manner. But when I was in Japan, I met with a family who had been evacuated from uh, the Fukushima site. And it was a, a grandmother and a grandfather. And they showed me a picture on the wall of their children and grandchildren. Uh, and I recently had a son, uh, not before I went on this trip, but after the trip. And the importance of family is something that's very, very significant for people. And this person told me that before he evacuated, he lived in the same town as his children and his grandchildren. Uh, after the accident, they all moved to different places. He was living with his wife in, in a temporary uh, housing area. Uh, but his children and grandchildren uh, had had to move to another area for jobs, for work, to continue on with their life. These are not often the stories that we hear uh, about this accident. But these are, in the end, the people who are most affected by the accident. So as we think about nuclear power plants, what we need to think about is ways that we can prevent that situation from happening and not prevent it in a probability way, but prevent it in an absolute way. Now, I think that there are ways to do that. I think that there are ways to design nuclear power plants to be able to meet that criteria. I think that would be difficult, it would be costly, and it would be expensive. But if nuclear is going to be a, an energy source that is used, I think we have to finally make the rules such that there will never be another evacuation from a nuclear power plant accident. Not a low likelihood of, of no evacuation, but no evacuation. And in many ways, the rules around nuclear power plants say that, but not in all cases. In some cases, they are the plants are designed to make sure that you don't have accidents that can evacuations. But in other cases, that, that does not exist. So as we look at the lessons, that is, I think, one of the most significant lessons, is the, the importance of considering the economic consequences and the economic impact uh, of an accident. Now, I will say that as we look at the current 
fleet of nuclear reactors in this country. I think it's very important that we appreciate in the United States that many of the plants that we have are aging, that these plants, many of them were designed over 60 years ago, 50 to 60 years ago. The technology is very old and it's very outdated. And I think it's time that we begin to reconsider prolonging the lifetime of many of these reactors. Over the years, the process of reviewing and uh, extending the licenses of nuclear power plants has been focused on a very narrow set of issues. I think if we were to look more broadly at re-examining each reactor based on a modern set of um, safety standards, that in many cases we would see plants that would no longer be able to be licensed and operate. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, in this country, but I think it's something that we should seriously, uh, seriously consider. So as we look at the, at the impacts of the accident, I think it's very important to keep in mind, as I said, just to summarize a number of very important lessons. One is that accidents do happen. Uh, I once looked up the word accident. Uh, it comes from the Latin, uh, and I studied Latin a long time ago, so my Latin isn't very good. Um, but it comes from the Latin verb to happen. Uh, and over the years, um, that word has come to mean accident. Uh, the Latin root is really happens or happenings or, or things that will happen. Uh, and, and that's, of course, that's what accidents are. Accidents do happen. And it's important for us to learn that lesson. I think many people in the nuclear industry after the Fukushima accident did learn that lesson. I think many people did not. I think in this country in particular, there are a number of people who continue to believe that the accident was isolated to Japan and that the impacts are not uh, to be felt in the United States. My experience is that that is very, very far from the truth. There are, in fact, significant lessons uh, for the U.S. plants. While I was chairman, uh, I led uh, the creation of a task force to examine lessons for nuclear power plants in the United States. There were 12 major lessons that were identified. Uh, number one, or one of those, a very significant one, was that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission needed to stop using voluntary initiatives on the part of the industry as a replacement for regulations. Yeah. And many of the things that, that failed uh, in the plants in Japan were elements of reactor design that were voluntary uh, requirements in the United States. And I, I was proud of the fact that during my time at the NRC, we changed a number of those and made some things binding uh, requirements uh, on nuclear power plants. But many of those 12 recommendations are still uh, to be addressed and still uh, to be fully implemented. But so I think as we go forward, it's vital that we continue to focus on implementing those 12 recommendations and make sure that nuclear power plants that are continuing to operate uh, do so with the full benefit and the full implementation of the lessons that we learned from the accident in Fukushima. Finally, I just want to touch on an issue that did come up during my time as chairman, and that is how do we deal with new, the licensing of new nuclear reactors in, in the United States. Currently, there are four plants being constructed uh, in the southeastern part of the United States. I did not support the licensing of those reactors. Uh, I did not support them because I believe that we had not yet fully implemented uh, the license, uh, the, the lessons from Fukushima. And I thought that before we move forward, it was vital that each of those designs was modified and corrected to address all of those recommendations that I mentioned to you that were identified uh, uh, by uh, a very select group of staff at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Given that we had not completed that work, I did not think it was appropriate to move forward uh, with licensing of those, of those reactors until we had completed that work. As, as you heard from uh, Mayor Polito, that I was not supported by my colleagues on the commission. Uh, but it is still what I feel was the right decision. Uh, and I do worry that as those plants continue to be built and constructed, they will begin operating before all of the lessons have been implemented from Fukushima in the United States. And I think that sends a very bad signal about uh, the importance of implementing those recommendations and the speed and the effort at which uh, we need to do that. 
I just want to close uh, on a some somewhat of a positive note. I uh, never thought that I would be in the middle of a nuclear uh, crisis uh, as I was. But one of the things that I did see during that crisis was the true courage that resides within al almost all people. I saw the courage of Prime Minister Khan as he dealt with a very difficult situation in Japan. I saw the courage of, of the Japanese people as they recovered from what was a tremendous, tremendous tragedy in their country. And not just the nuclear accident, but the tsunami itself. And I, I have seen many people who have stood up and who have said what they believed and what they have fought for. And I've seen many people stand with me as I did what I believed and what I thought was right. And I have developed strong bonds with people in Japan who have dealt with this. And throughout this, I have just been reminded repeatedly of the courage of the human spirit to overcome obstacles and to overcome hardship and tragedy. And as difficult as the accident in Japan was and the tsunami was, I have seen and been inspired by the people there as they have moved to recover and move forward and address their future in a brighter way. And I think that is perhaps the greatest lesson that we can all take from what happened there is the resilience of the, those people to deal with, with the tragedy and to move forward and to continue on uh, with, with their lives. So uh, again, I thank everybody um, for uh, inviting me to be here. And, and I'm really thrilled. And I look forward to the discussion and the questions that will happen. Thank you. We will have more from both these individuals in next week's Nuclear Hot Seat. But now I think it's important to understand the spirit and the energy that pulled this event together. And for that, here's an interview with Torgan Johnson. Torgan is an urban planner. He lives in the San Onofre area, and he speaks very articulately, very movingly, um, from a place of complete exhaustion about what it took to pull together today's event and what he hopes that it will lead to. Torgan, what moved you to begin the process of pulling these people together? Well, I think the, uh, the inability to have a meaningful, open, and honest public discussion in, a, in an uncontrolled public forum about such an important issue as restarting a damaged nuclear reactor at San Onofre upwind of 8.4 million people. The frustration of not being able to find that public forum within the regulatory framework and within our our uh, uh, local governments meant that we had to do it ourselves. And so I just decided to get on the phone and call some friends and see if we couldn't uh, uh, make connections to bring these people together and, and have a, a real discussion. <laughs> A real discussion meaning let's bring in the people that have seen nuclear disasters firsthand. Let's bring in people that have had to make the decision on whether or not to evacuate a city of 31 million people. And let's bring in people who um, have risked everything to be independent voices speaking out against what they see that's going wrong within a, an industry. And uh, let's bring them together in one room. And let them talk. Let them talk freely. The the agenda was really pretty open, and and uh, and the um, format was very open. The the there wasn't much structure to it. It was really just allowing these people the the ability to speak and uh, speak openly and uh, speak with a web link, a live web link, so that people that couldn't attend the meeting could could uh, view it online. And the thought was, let's open up a public discussion about the downsides of nuclear power in a way that we've never heard it before within these contrived and controlled meetings at the NRC. How did you get to Prime Minister Khan? Oh, that's a secret. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How did you get to and decide upon uh, former Chair Yasko and also Peter Bradford? Chairman Yasko came to Dana Point 
last year. Was it last year? Yeah, last year to speak to the public. And he was the first person at the NRC to open up a discussion with the public in a way that felt genuine. It felt it felt open, and uh, he reassured us that he was going to do all that he could to ensure that the power plant was going to be safe for surrounding communities. And so we had we had for a short while a sense that this regulatory agency actually cared about us, meaning meaning the public that s- surrounds the power plant, and that that uh, we had an ally within that agency that was uh, looking out after our interests, the public interest. Makes sense. It's a public agency, and it seems like public interest would be their 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 first and foremost goal. But it turns out that he was uh, pushed out of office about a month later which was very alarming for all of us. And uh, we remembered that. We remembered that this one man was very brave to speak out against a huge industry and in the process really really uh, commit himself to a very difficult reality going forward for himself personally and financially. So we said, well, you know, that, that would be the first person that I'd want to talk to. <laughs> Let's bring in somebody that's honest and puts principle before his own comfort. And uh, let's hear what he has to say. I mean, let's, let's match him up with Arnie Gunderson, who's done the same thing. Arnie's a hero. You know, we couldn't, uh, we couldn't pull this together and do it all by ourselves. And so um, Friends of the Earth was incredibly instrumental in helping us pull this off, as was the uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility and also... Uh, the Samuel Lawrence Foundation. And uh, so we, we pulled together the money and uh, decided that we would contact all these people. And also I want to add Peter Bradford, a former NRC commissioner who was on the commission during the Three Mile Island disaster. I have to say that I really appreciate Three Mile Island being included in the conversation because it so rarely is. Yes, yes and, and, and I think that's a case where I've... I've read a little bit about what it was like being on the commission when that was unfolding. And Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima, they all have a a similar sort of sequence of events that happen when these things start to unfold, which is there's very, very poor information that gets circulated about what's really happening uh, or no information. And then there's the problem of these disasters being downplayed after they've happened. So the public's really kept in the dark. And since the nature of a nuclear disaster is that it's invisible to your, all your senses, can't smell or taste or see it, um, you really have to rely on experts. You have to rely on monitoring equipment that most of us don't have. So we're literally in the dark as to where where this stuff is, where it is, what it is, how much concentration we're dealing with, and is it in our food? Are we uptaking it in the water? These are kind of nightmarish accidents. When you realize it years down the road when you have mysterious cancers, you have no idea where those things originated. Um, so we want to prevent these kinds of accidents. And to do that, probably the best way to do it is to, is to let people know what these facilities are capable of doing. Open up the discussion, not just to nuclear experts, but this was really the first the first discussion about these disasters. Now we've heard what the nuclear experts say. Let's hear now what landowners think. I'd like to open that up. What, let's talk to the property owners, the people that own the Irvine Company. Or let's talk about the people that own uh, biomedical research facilities worth billions of dollars. Are they okay with a, an industrial facility 16 miles away firing up a damaged, defective nuclear reactor unit and potentially wiping out businesses downwind. I think those businesses downwind have a say. They have a vested interest in that restart. And not only that, but let's talk about the moms and the dads that have children downwind of that power plant. Uh, They have a vested interest in that power plant remaining safe. Are they okay with a power plant that's going to risk an industrial accident that could impact the health of their children? I think those parents have a vested interest, too, so they should be part of this, this discussion. But we have to start that discussion somewhere, and that's what, that's what this was about today, was opening up that dialogue, the way we do it in planning. In planning, we try to bring all the parties together and hash it out, dis- dis- discuss, 
figure out who all the interests interested parties are, and and then uh, figure out what their what their positions are, and then and then go from there. We've never really done that with nuclear power. How do you think today went? It was kind of dreamy, actually. You know, I think uh, I realized when I was calling up these two men, former Prime Minister Naoto Khan and uh, former chairman of the NRC, Gregory Yesko, that they had never met before. I guess there was information exchange between them, but they had never actually met. So what I thought would be very interesting would be to have these two men, after going through such a hellish experience, to be removed from it here in San Diego, where we've got a little distance from that disaster, sit down and talk realistically or factually about what happened in Fukushima. Where were the mistakes made? And uh, what do these what do these accidents mean to society? And uh, in arranging this meeting, I was really pleased to find out that they were interested in, in meeting with each other and talking. That was just a thrill. I remember telling my wife, I said, Lindsay, I just had the most incredible phone call. <laughs> I think I think we're going to have a really special meeting here in San Diego, and I want to say it, it was a wonderful thing because I have a little daughter. She just turned six, and she actually turned six on the the day that these people flew in, and uh, everybody flew in, and we had a small little get together to just talk. And uh, I told my daughter, I said, "This is this is a father's present to his daughter." She's been so alert and so aware about the Fukushima disaster. She asks about the children. She asks about what radiation means. And I said, you know, we're gonna we're gonna nip it in the bud, dear. We're gonna nip this one in the bud, and I'm gonna bring in the best men in the world <laughs> to help us out. Now these people have big hearts, so we had this tiny meeting, and there was a point in the meeting where my daughter came in and. She gave them some cards that she had created, and she gave them each a sunflower, a symbol of the anti-nuclear movement. And uh, in a tiny little circle, I had some of the most amazing human beings singing happy birthday to my daughter. (laughs) And I said, this is just meant to be. This is meant to be. And then today, the day after, we rushed to pieces conference together and we had tremendous help from the county, from county supervisor Dave Roberts. He's the new San Diego County Supervisor. What a wonderful human being he is. And his staff, all of them, Ty and all the staff in his office, Anne-Marie, and they were they were amazing people to help us piece this together, keep the cost down, let us use a public venue. They helped us with all the audiovisual and uh, helped us with the uh, uh, web link and so forth. So all the pieces just sort of came together, Libby. And uh, as we were watching, this is the long answer to your question, how did I feel? It was was dreamlike (laughs) to see all these men sitting there and see some of my closest friends in the audience. And I thought, we've done it. We've just opened up the first real public dialogue that's got unassailable expertise talking about the things that we've always known which is these things are big nasty accidents they're devastating economically they're regionally devastating accidents that are avoidable and these experts talked about that issue and I just feel I feel lucky that I've met all of you all the people that are fighting this fight it's, it's, the most heartfelt group I could ever imagine meeting. And so to have all these amazing people, <laughs> it, was a, it was a supercharged room. And I, yeah, yeah, it was a supercharged room. And there were a lot of issues. I also want to say a lot of issues that, you know, are still, still left unresolved. They're very serious issues. But it, this was a start. This was a start. So if you would see this going forward from today in some substantive way, building on what you and the others in Southern California pulled together, what would you want that to be? Well, I think, I think after talking with a number of close friends in, in Beverly, Finlay, Kaneko, 
specifically. She had a conversation with me about this meeting, and she was so clear in what was important to her, which is important to me, which would be the first thing we do is we address the children that are still in the radioactive hot zones, the families that don't have the money or the means to escape. Beverly described it as the, the house is still on fire and there's kids in there today, right now. I think that's the first thing we need to look at immediately, is how can we help or assist or bring attention to that issue. What I found was that Prime Minister Khan is sympathetic and understands these issues. We didn't get the typical bureaucrat's response. We got, we got a real man speaking truthfully. And, and even with the cultural translation, I mean, the, the public didn't hear all the conversations that were had with him. There were a lot of conversations in transit from L.A. to San Diego. There were a lot of conversations over dinner and conversations at the hotel. And my sense of it is that uh, former Prime Minister Khan knows that he was overwhelmed by a situation that wasn't handled perfectly. And there are a lot of victims still that haven't, their issues haven't been addressed. And I think we have a person in Mr. Khan who is going to listen to the public and he's going to do the right thing. And he's going to, he's going to listen to the mothers who are struggling with trying to protect their children in these radioactive hot zones right now. I think that's a big one. He also discussed with us what it's like to be in that position looking at the economics and the politics of nuclear power. It's a complex issue. But the bottom line is, is are these things going to hurt our kids? Are these things going to destroy our homes? Are these things going to ruin our businesses if they go bad? And the answer is yes, yes, and yes. And he says that. He said that he did a 180-degree turnaround. He was once a believer in nuclear power and the safety of nuclear power. He says, absolutely not now. And uh, that was the same conclusion I came to also. I've never been an activist like this before. I'm not an activist now. I always say I'm a concerned father of three small kids and I'm an urban planner and everything I'm learning about nuclear power is completely absolutely anti-urban. <laughs> anti-urban like a giant eraser. So we have a difficult situation on our hands. We're, we're losing San Onofre is maybe a little bit like a regional heart transplant. We also know that that thing could uh, you know, have a major convulsion and we could all wind up suffering. It's better to do the transplant while we can. And move to renewable re move to renewable options. There's a lot of safer options. We don't even need them right away. We actually have enough energy right now, according to the California Independent Systems Operator. We have surplus even for the summer. So we don't, we're not in a big rush to uh, scramble to find replacement power for the power plant. We're actually in pretty good shape. So we have a little bit of time now. Um, I think uh, Mr. Khan pointed to a direction which was renewables, pushing renewables like we've seen in Germany, like we've seen in the rest of Europe and across the United States. It seems to be the answer. It's the direction to go. It was confirmed today. A lot of things were confirmed today. The absolute foolishness of restarting San Onofre, dumping good money after bad, was made clear today. I think we should keep it shut down and move towards decommissioning the power plant, not waste the public's time anymore or the public's money. We clearly don't need it. It's been off for uh, uh, how many months now has it been? It's uh, what? Since January 31st of 2012. January 31st of 2012. We're, you know, we're uh, way over a year without it. So uh, clearly we don't need it. So let's, let's keep it shut down. Let's keep you get no argument from me on that. Yeah. Torgan, thank you so much for having had the vision and the follow-through and the energy, which looks like it's completely used up at this point. <laughs> and I hope that you have a good three days of sleep without interruption. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to take my kids. I haven't seen my kids in several days. I think I'm going to take my kids and go enjoy a couple slow days with them right now, my wife. That's what I look forward to right now. But uh, it centers me. The kids make it, this issue so clear. It's the kids, and as as Gene Stone said, uh, let's let's look ahead seven generations. He's absolutely right. Let's make decisions that think far into the future, not just at quarterly bottom lines, corporate line bottom lines. Let's really think seven generations ahead. 
I'd like to think I'm setting up the next energy system that my daughter's granddaughter will enjoy. Let's think long term. Let's think big. We're giving the final word for this week's nuclear hot seat to Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds Energy Education. Arnie is a nuclear engineer, a former nuclear insider who ran plants. He has an extensive background within the industry, and he's been one of our most helpful and articulate spokespeople on behalf of nuclear sanity. Here's what Arnie had to say about the event today. I think it was phenomenal because... um the, 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 the gravitas of four heavy hitters, you know, a, a, a former prime minister, a former NRC chairman, a former NRC commissioner, a former senior VP, who never scripted anything, and we were all weaving the same fabric. I think that's a, that, that leaves an impression that we're not just individual cynics. I mean, it, it tells people that underneath this is something inherently wrong, and um, uh, a lot of smart people... Can, can tell you a lot about it if you're willing to listen. I was attacked on the Twitter feeds by Riva and uh, Nuclear Energy Institute today. So you know you're getting a hit home when they, um, when they start going after you personally. You know, if they can't win on facts, they've got to they gotta attack your, your personality. Yeah. What do you think are the chances of the uh, dog and pony show continuing on to other venues? I don't think uh, Khan is available. <laughs> we'll take the American contingent. Arnie Gunderson got his final word as one of the participants. Here's mine. Fukushima Daiichi Disaster Lessons for California, that's the official name of today's event, was an historic ingathering, not only of those who have faced the horror of a nuclear disaster while they held responsibility for responding to it, but also in the worldwide community that came together to hear them speak. Early in the proceedings, we learned that more than 1,000 people were watching via live stream, and we'd already hit more than 20,000 tweets. Even if a lot of those were from Arriva dinging at Arnie, that still makes for a major impact, and our numbers grew steadily throughout the day. Can you feel it? An international movement against nuclear and for renewables is coming together. We've existed in little pockets before, but now we reach out coordinate and share time and space as one. Thanks to the Internet, there's no time lag in the sharing of information, no part of the planet that is beyond the reach of this burgeoning movement, which is as it should, because no part of the planet is beyond the reach of nuclear trash, radiation, and its ill effects. No government, no corporation paid these men to come together and speak their truth. Indeed, government and corporations are the very entities that might have paid them to keep quiet and stay apart. But these four men did this of one heart, one belief that there is information and perspective they had that needed to be shared, and they were the only ones to do it. And so they did. They were brave. So are we. We can do this. We are doing it. Taking nuclear down and learning how to clean up the rest. So keep listening, because at Nuclear Hot Seat, we've all got a ringside seat to an amazing, life-changing, social change movement one of the most important ever created, because what's at stake is nothing less than the future of life itself. I'm thrilled to be on this journey with you. Be sure to invite your friends to join us. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, June 4, 2013. Our thanks to the event participants, the Honorable Naoto Khan, Gregory Yasko, Peter A. Branford, Arnie Gunderson, and San Diego County Supervisor Dave Roberts, who sponsored the event and whose office did so much to support it. Torgan Johnson is the man who had a vision to create this day's event and who carried it through to completion. Kudos, Torgan. Kathy Iwane provided interpretation as well as doing much of the coordinating on the ground. Further props to Gary and Lori Hedrick of San Clemente Green, and I know that there are many others to thank, but at this late hour, my brain isn't functioning and their names elude me. I'll catch up with them next week. If you like the podcast, help me keep it going. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com on the homepage, click on Donate, help me with a donation to keep this podcast going, and thank you when you do. If you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2013, all rights reserved, but you have my personal permission to reuse 
as long as you include proper attribution to me, a link to my website, and the email address. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep.